Our Father, we thank you for um, the life that you give us. Thank you so much for every day that is a gift from you, that, uh, from your grace. Uh, we thank you too, Father, for the new life that you freely offer and give to us through Jesus, uh, a new life with you, um, reconciled to you in your kingdom with an eternal hope, uh, with a secure foundation and a, a, a purpose and meaning for today. Uh, Father, we pray now as, as we gather together, uh, really to um, the central part of our, our meeting, as we hear your word read, and then as we reflect on it and think about it, uh, Father, please by your spirit be gracious, and Lord, we ask that you might move in us and change us for your glory. Please, as we hear your word, uh, may we have hearts that are ready to receive it and soft towards it. Help us to understand it properly and well. Um, that we might live for the praise of your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mark. So our reading today is from Daniel 1, and it's Daniel's training in Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing good aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abignego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. 
at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink uh, the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Great to dive into this intriguing, fascinating book of the Old Testament, Daniel. You probably have, uh, if you grew up around churches and uh, Christian things, you probably have all sorts of um, images about Daniel, things that you would have uh, you know, uh, learned as a kid, those incredible stories, which we will get to, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, the three friends in the furnace and all of that. Uh, it is a really helpful book. Uh, it's hugely important, actually, and, and I, uh, what I hope for us to find as we discover this book again, as we read it together, is that uh, it's an important book and it's really actually a very relevant book for us today. It lines up in so many ways with our situation as Christians in this culture today. Uh, God's word here has a vital truth for God's people, as it does in every place, but a particular truth for us. Uh, part of the reason why I think the book of Daniel is so relevant for us is uh, because of the time and the place where it's set in, this, in the whole unfolding story of the Bible. So we're going to take a very quick Cook's tour through the Bible. If you've been here for other series, maybe this is familiar to you. But just really quickly, uh, to just help us to see where Daniel fits. The Bible obviously starts with creation. God's create, God creates everything out of nothing. Uh, he creates his creation good and he creates people as the sort of the, the, the pinnacle of it, to know him and love him. But of course, then there's the story of the fall. Human beings rebel against God. They turn away from his good and loving rule. Uh, but God doesn't just wipe the world out. He, in his grace, continues to persist with his people. And uh, he gives these incredible promises to Abraham, this great turning point in the Bible, Genesis 12. He gives these wonderful promises uh, of uh, of people and a land through whom he would bless the whole world. He'd undo the fall and bring people back into his loving rule. Um, there's, then there's the story of the Exodus. We'll just skip through these things. What's next? Uh, the, God's people are, are led away into um, Egypt and then they come back and enter the promised land. And last, uh, a couple of years ago, we looked at Judges, which was set around that time. And then there's this kingdom set up, which is a really significant point in this whole story. God wants to re-establish his loving, good rule over his people. This is his plan. And he starts that with this kingdom of Israel being set up. Uh, it's not long after things go a little bit awry and uh, the kingdom is divided and you get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, but still there's this kingdom of God, this people of Israel who are in the land and it looks as though God, might, God will bring his blessing to the world through them. If you're familiar with the story though, it just goes down and down and down. Uh, the, the, there are a few high points, a few kings who 
um, seek God and, and lead the people in his ways, but it goes down and down basically until um, there's this terrible event of the exile uh, where God, um, in fulfilment of the, the uh, promises that he had given them of uh, what would happen if they turned from him, God leads his people away uh, from his land. He leads them into exile. He, uh, he punishes them and they end up um, in Babylon in exile. Uh, that there's a sort of partial return from exile partway through, but they never really leave. They never really get back to where they were. Uh, and then, the, as the rest of the story, as we know it as Christians, goes on, there's, Jesus comes into that situation and uh, in his death and resurrection establishes this new people of God, the church. Uh, so really, a quick Cook's tour. But what, what's important for Daniel is that it's, it's set you know, in the time of the exile there. So... <clears throat> Um, Daniel, uh, I think it's just helpful to have in mind as we start this book where Daniel fits in this big story. And, and it, it'll really help us as we think about how we respond to Daniel. One reason Daniel is so relevant to us is because the New Testament picks up on this theme of exile that, uh, goes through the, uh, that is there in the Old Testament story. The New Testament picks up on it uh, and it applies it to Christians, to people on the other side of the cross, uh, not a political exile like Israel experienced, they were physically uh, removed from the land, but a real and spiritual one. If you're a Christian here this morning, you live in two kingdoms, two cities. Uh, the, mo- the, the moment you're united to Jesus by faith, you enter his good and loving rule with him as your eternal king. You enter his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that's where your life is, that's where your identity is. Um, or oh, it's all through the New Testament. A couple of um, a couple of pas- passages that uh, highlight this from Philippians three, the Apostle Paul writes, "But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ." See what he's saying there. He's writing to people whose citizenship is in Philippi, <laughs> but he says, "No, no, no. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where." where we belong, that is our identity, our location, where we live in reality. Um, and uh, uh, the Apostle Peter, he writes in his letter, 1 Peter, he, when he opens his, the first thing he talks about when he opens his letter, he says, uh, he calls to these, writes to these scattered Christians all over and he calls them uh, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. It taps into these deep issues that this deep issue that the people in the exile, the time of the exile, struggled with, and that Christians, all through, uh, ever since the beginning of the church with Jesus, have struggled with to various degrees, and something that we struggle with particularly, I think, um, in our particular time and place, the question of what does it look like to live in the kingdoms of this world but belong to the eternal kingdom of God? What does it look like to live in exile, to live faithfully in exile? Uh, so you get this story of exile in the opening chapters of Daniel. If you have the a, a Bible with Daniel chapter 1 open there, uh, we're going to um, read through the story again and, and just pull some threads together as we think about this incredible, this incredible story. Uh, it opens with this tale of two kingdoms, you see, uh, it should be up on the screen, the first couple of verses, you get the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, overpowers Jehoiakim, king of Judah. 
and as you, uh, as you read on, you get this low point. This, this foreign king has overpowered the king of Judah, the one who was representative of the creator God, the one and true God. But then you get an even lower point. This foreign worshipper of idols, of false gods, pillages the temple of the one true God and takes the, what he, what he, the plunder out of there and puts it in the, temples, the temple of his, the treasury of his gods back in Babylon. Uh, you get this picture that exile isn't just a political crisis, it's a theological one. Uh, where is God in this? Uh, where is God in this terrible thing that's happening? Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, oh, uh, it's, we need to um, see as we come to Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar um, wasn't looking just to wipe out this foreign nation. So he, he's got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't just want to um, wipe out a whole bunch of nations. He wants to set up an empire. So just notice his strategy, how he goes about doing that. If you're going to create an empire, you don't just kill off your enemies. What do you do? You make friends with them and you bring them under your rule. You assimilate them. You convert them. Uh, you, you turn troublesome citizens of Jerusalem into good citizens of Babylon. Uh, and that's part of his strategy. You get it from verse 3 in Daniel. He gets the cream of the Israelite crop. Uh, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of, for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So he takes, uh, see you later, Hodge lads, see you later, Connor, see you later, Jane. He takes all these young men, intelligent, and sorry if I missed anyone else out. Uh, he takes them off to Babylon and leaves um, the people of Judah and Israel back in Judah. Uh, it takes these, these, these guys away. He puts them into an elite university, puts them, uh, runs them through a three-year course, Perhaps it was an MBA, a Master of Babylonian Administration. Thank you. Uh, and those who do well enough in their studies, they go to the top. They, um, you know, they go straight into the king's service. Uh, they get taught the language and the literature of Babylon, and they get the best food, the food from the king's table. They kind of get treated... And what's, what's really interesting is, uh, did you pick up as we read through, what does this course, this MBA, <laughs> involve for these guys who, this cream of the crop who uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to convert to good Babylonians? What's the course involve? It's not just the language of Babylon, it's the language and the literature of Babylon. Uh, they're not just learning a new language. What Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do for these guys is immerse them in the literature of their new culture. Now, when you hear the word literature, don't just think people who like reading big books. Uh, that's kind of a, 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 a way into the literature of a culture as a way into the big ideas that underlie the culture, the worldview that underlies it. Um, so they get a free library card. Maybe they get an unlimited, super-fast NBN connection and a subscription to Netflix. Um, see, Nebuchadnezzar knows how powerful culture is, how the literature and the, the, the cultural um, creativity of a culture, the things that they produce, how it, when you take it in, it, it shapes how you see the world. Uh, these, the literature of a culture shapes what you think of, how you th see things as what, what is normal, what is good, 
um, what is right, what is abnormal, what is evil. Uh, and he gets these young, talented, probably young uh, because perhaps they're a bit more impressionable or that's what Nebuchadnezzar thinks, a bit more malleable. He gets them and he soaks them in the worldview of Babylon. Can you imagine how, on one level, how gratifying it would have felt for those guys uh, to be taken? They know they're the cream of the crop. They're taken and they get highly educated. They get a place at the king's... And they get a promise of an excellent future in Babylon. It must have been so easy to start thinking that Babylon wasn't so bad after all. Not too bad after all to be in exile. Well, there's one more piece of Nebuchadnezzar's assimilation strategy here, and you get that in verse 6. Do you notice that he gives them all new names? Uh, It's not just because their Hebrew names were unpronounceable, because he gives them pretty unpronounceable names as well. So... Uh, But we're introduced to uh, these guys, Daniel and his three mates, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And if you've got maybe a study Bible, maybe you you can see this down in the notes, they might have, but these names of these guys are packed full of meaning. Um, It'll come up on the screen, hopefully. Daniel, uh, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh, the Lord, has been gracious. Mishael, Who is like God? Azariah, God is my helper. These names that are filled with um, meaning and significance for these Israelite people. And he gives them new names. I won't go through what what they all mean. We're not entirely sure of all of them. But basically, all the new names they get, Belteshazzar, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, (laughs) they're all names, in contrast to these names, they're all names that connect them to the gods of Babylon. They connect them... So there were kind of signals that Nebuchadnezzar was giving that they now belonged to new gods, the gods of Babylon. Even in this name change, you see what's going on there. And up to this point, up to this point, everything is done to Daniel and his friends. They're like they're victims of Nebuchadnezzar's geopolitical game that he's playing. Uh, Daniel and his three friends, uh, everything gets done to them. Up to this point in verse 8, they're taken away, put into re-education program. But then you get this turning point, verse 8. Verse 8 really sets the scene for pretty much the whole rest of the book, actually, but certainly for the rest of this chapter. It's the first time you see Daniel doing something. Now, what's his response to this? What's happened to him? And what is it he does? He resolves. He's not just going to float around with the tide. He resolves on something. There's an issue that he's going to take a stand on. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal wine, food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So Daniel chooses this issue to take a stand on we don't, we're not exactly sure why he chooses this issue of food and wine. Um, it could be that uh, there's the, the, if you know the Old Testament, um, the people had food laws that they were to follow, and it could be that he's worried about breaking them, but there's nothing about prohibiting drinking wine in those, so 
that doesn't seem to be exactly what's going on. One possible reason that I think has maybe some um, uh, significance is uh, in ancient times and still in Middle Eastern cultures today, eating from someone's table had, was much more uh, weighted and significant than perhaps it is in our culture. Uh, it was a sign of fellowship, it, it, of acceptance, and uh, you identify with this person to eat from their table. And it could simply have been that for Daniel, he'd been given his new name, he'd been enrolled in this new, new university, he was learning the literature of the Babylonians. It could be that for him to eat this food was just one step too far. Um, was just one step, just getting uh, just that li- little bit too identified with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Uh, and perhaps it's for, for Daniel, it's simply that he has this sense that uh, this is just too far. If I do this, I'm gone. I'm Babylonian. So for whatever reason, though, he does draw a line. He does draw this line. He, uh, but did you notice how Daniel's reaction here to everything that's been done to him? Uh, it's, both, uh, it, it's both a strong reaction, but it's also a nuanced one that there would have been a couple of options for Daniel and his mates. Um, they could have just been jellyfish, right? Go along with the tide. Just go with whatever happens. They could have totally assimilated. And you can imagine the pressure to do that, right? He's the, they're there with a whole bunch of other people from Judah. You can imagine everyone saying, guys, just get over it. Get over your scruples and eat the food. This is awesome. You know, we, we've got the king's food to eat. Um, just assimilate. The, the other end, though, the other alternative that they could have gone, but they didn't, is the kind of opposite extreme, to circle the wagons uh, and to go into a kind of siege mentality or a, a kind of retreat into their own um, ghetto mentality. Uh, it's us against them, and we'll have as little contact as possible. Um, and you can, you can see how they, they could have... Uh, chosen either of those extremes, but they, they didn't. You, what, is, what is Daniel's response? He does the hard work of thoughtfully engaging with his culture. Um, the difficult task of being in the world, but not of the world. He takes his new name, uh, he goes to uni, he masters the literature, we learn later, uh, he serves the king. So he, he's, he is in this culture, this Babylonian. He doesn't circle the wagons and say, I'm not engaging at all. He is in this culture. But he doesn't just go wherever the culture leads him. He knows that more fundamental than belonging to Babylon for this short period of time, however long he's there, his real core identity is not there. His real core identity well, for, for um, Daniel was back in Jerusalem under the good and loving rule of the one true and living God. There comes a line where he knows that Babylon and Yahweh um, rub against each other and Yahweh needs to win. He, he, there's a, there comes a, time, a, a line that he won't cross. 
And we heard the rest. We're not going to go into great detail the rest of the story, but it sort of plays out from there. Uh, the chief official doesn't want to let them do it. He's sort of sympathetic to them, but he says, look, you know, my head's on the chopping block if, uh, if I let you not eat the king's food and you guys get, show up to the king looking like scraps and, you know, the king's going to get, take my head. Uh, but Daniel manage, manages to convince the guard below the chief official, the guard above him, just to give him a trial run for 10 days and just live on veggies and water. Um, this, uh, uh, I'm not, yeah, uh, there are some um, kind of, there's some thought that this uh, is a recommended diet that comes through. I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, this isn't recommending a particular kind of diet for us. The whole point of just 10 days, right, is just have 10 days. The whole point of that is that it's so improbable that that would make any difference to them in just 10 days. We're meant to see that there's something else going on. Not only did they survive their veggie diet, uh, they looked healthier and better nourished than the others who did eat all the food. And what we're meant to see is underlying all of this is something that's more than just a diet. As however healthy it might be to cut out and just eat your veggies, that's not the, the point that's being, being made here. There's something else going on that's more than just diet, but we're going to come back to that. Okay. But by the end of the chapter, you get these four Israelite men, uh, these young men, who are not only in better physical shape uh, than the rest of them, but they, are, uh, they excel in their training. They're top of the class. But they're not only top of the class for the guys in the university. They graduate out of university, and they are top of... The nation, uh, they're top of their field, they're top of everyone. You see that um, uh, they excel in their training, they even outstrip the long-standing wise men of Babylon, what gets called down in uh, verse 20, I think, their magicians and their enchanters. Uh, they're ten times better than all of them. So there's no one in Babylon who even comes close to these guys in terms of both their physical kind of health, but more significant even than that, their intelligence, their wisdom, and we hear for Daniel his ability to interpret dreams, which comes into play soon. All right. Well, friends, it's tempting to think... Um, well, they are. these guys are uh, incredible, right? These four Israelite young men. They are um, inspiring. And on one level, this is a story of social and political upheaval, and of some young men's struggle to keep their identity. Um, but actually, we're meant to see that that's not what's driving what's going on here. That's not at the heart of this story. At the heart of Daniel chapter 1, at the heart of the whole book of Daniel, uh, is not individual people who are part of the story, but the one true and living God who sits over it all. While the king, you might have noticed, I, I kind of have skipped over a number of significant verses. Uh, back in verse 2, while the king of Babylon defeated the king of Judah, that's, you know, on one level, it's just one king crushing another, but you get this really important indication right at the start in verse 2. The great king of kings stood over it all. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in control. I mean, that's a pretty... Radical thing to say, right? 
Of course Nebuchadnezzar's in control. He's the one with the army. He's the one who's carried these guys off. But not, not, he's, not, he's not the one with final authority. He's not the one in control. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. Daniel's resolve was impressive, but it was God. It was God who softened the officials' hearts towards him. It was God who miraculously made them outstandingly healthier and more nourished after just 10 days of veggies and water. It was God who gave them knowledge and understanding. Um, God was present and working out his good purposes all through. He was... He was the one moving all of this, even when, and especially when, everything, all the external circumstances around seemed to be pointing against that, seemed to be saying that he wasn't in control. And for Daniel and their friends, it was knowing this God, the covenant God of Israel. It was trusting in his care and provision that gave Daniel, that gave the three, his three mates the courage they needed to draw their line. It was God who sustained Daniel. And you notice that right at the end, he outlasts the whole empire. I've, I, don't, I think I forgot to put that um, up on the screen, but it's in your Bible there, verse 21. Right at the end, really interesting little, little verse, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. We find out later in Daniel... King Cyrus was the first king of a whole new empire that came in and wiped out the Babylonians and took over. So um, you get this impression of Daniel's... He's outlasting Nebuchadnezzar. He's outlasting the Babylonian empire. He remains there. And we're going to see uh, uh, as we go... But, uh, yeah, uh, Babylon was uh, overthrown by this new king Cyrus and his kingdom, Persia. The kingdom... Babylon seemed so strong, right? It seemed so overwhelmingly powerful. Nebuchadnezzar, no one could touch him. What seemed so strong, though, had its day. Another kingdom rose up. That kingdom fell down. But Daniel's still there. And not just Daniel. More than that, and the reason Daniel's still there is that God's still there. The true king who is eternal and reigns over all and is still reigning today. Um, next week we're going to look at chapter 2, um, which you get this great vision and we're going to think more about this eternal, unstoppable kingdom of God that gets really vividly portrayed there. But for us, friends, uh, having this... What does it mean for us to have this dual citizenship it's not actually real it's not really dual citizenship is it because if you're a dual citizen you equally belong to one or the other i think that's how it works uh, but what does it mean for us to have our primary our real citizenship our, our true eternal citizenship in the kingdom of heaven not in the kingdoms of this world what does it mean for us in the south coast um living that kind of two kingdom's life creates all sort of pr- sorts of pressures, doesn't it? It always has. That's what you see in Daniel 1. It always has. And until the Lord returns and establishes his eternal kingdom forever, it, it always will create all kinds of pressures. 
that come on us. Um, how do we respond? On the one hand, friends, as those, we're, we're united to Jesus, and you kind of see this in the way Daniel and his friends respond. Remember how we, they didn't respond um, with a kind of uh, just cutting themselves off from the world. They didn't respond like that. Being united to Jesus means sharing his good mission for this world. Uh, it means being engaged in the culture around us, having the security, being having our identity in Christ frees us to live securely in the world around us. Daniel didn't just become grumpy at Babylon. Um, he would have known the prophet Jeremiah's words. So um, if you're taking notes, Jeremiah 29, sorry, my brain's, is that right, Clayton? Jeremiah 29, you maybe, <laughs> I didn't have that down. Thanks, he's nodding. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah's called. Daniel would have known the prophet Jeremiah's call uh, to seek the Jeremiah was written in this same time and Jeremiah calls God's people to seek the good of the city that they're in while they're there to seek the good of Babylon while they're there he would have known that uh, he was free to engage in the life of the city to seek its good but he also knew that there were times when he would have to say I will please Yahweh and not Nebuchadnezzar. Now because, friends, for us, because Jesus is our Lord, other lords, other things that put claims on us, that put their finger on us and say, eat this food, <laughs> eat from my table, identify with me. Not literally, you understand. Um, other claims that are on us, because Jesus is our Lord, they don't have an ultimate place for us. And that'll mean there will be points at which we will say, I will not eat the king's food. Now that's going to take discernment and careful thought for each of us, actually. Um, the accepted norms of our culture are increasingly hostile to the claims of the gospel. And they're just norms that we just soak in, don't we? As we learn the language and literature of 21st century Australia, as we soak ourselves in it, for all of us, this is a challenge. Uh, it's going to be, I, I think, a special, uh, especially a challenge for uh, you, young, you younger guys, young adults and kids. I think growing, it's going to be harder for you to be Christian than it has been for me or for anyone older here in our culture today. Uh, what is it that is going to enable you to draw the line when you need to? Ultimately, friends, it is the gospel of Jesus that liberates us from needing the acceptance of Babylon, needing the acceptance of Nebuchadnezzar. We are already completely accepted and loved by the creator God of the universe. We belong to his family, his kingdom. We're brought near to him not because of our performance, but by his wonderful, overflowing grace and kindness and love. Colossians 1 tells us, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Friends, if you're a Christian, that's the kingdom you belong to. That's the kingdom 
where your real identity is. Um, if you're not a Christian, um, the claim of Jesus is that this, this kingdom, his kingdom, really is the, the true one, the one that will last forever. We all live in a kingdom in a way. I'm using that kind of language, but you understand what I mean, right? We all live in our own different kingdoms. We all have these other claims that press in on us, these other lords that seek to kind of control us and call us to eat their food and show our allegiance. Coming into Jesus' kingdom, it will put you at odds with them. And it might mean that you have to give up some things to draw your own lines uh, and resolve yourself to live to please King Jesus rather than King Nebuchadnezzar. But Jesus is the only king, friends, if that's you and that's something you're struggling, you're facing. Jesus is the only king that will ultimately sustain you and will fill you up. He is the, he's the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was the king who... Uh, killed in order to establish his kingdom. Jesus is the king who gave himself up to death in order to establish his kingdom. He's the king who died for you, uh, who loves his people. His kingdom is true and good. It is beautiful and it's freely offered to you if you receive it. That's what living as exiles. I hope you're looking forward to the next coming chapters as we kind of go in more detail into these different stories and draw out a little bit more of what this exile life looks like. Um, but let's pray, shall we? Can we pray together? Father, thank you. Thank you for this chapter from Daniel. Thank you for the word that it gives us. Uh, thank you, Father, for... We do thank you for Daniel and his friends. We thank you for the courage they showed in the face of uh, this pressure to conform to the kingdom of Babylon but Lord, under and over that and empowering that, we know is the reality of your sovereign hand, your grace that no kingdom can, no, no matter how impressive it looks, no matter how powerful it looks, no kingdom can touch. Lord, your ways will prevail. Your kingdom is eternal. And in the Lord Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, we have certain confidence that your kingdom is established and we, are, we have entered into it by faith. Thank you for bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Strengthen us, give us real wisdom as we live this kind of pressured life between well, anchored in the, your kingdom and, but living, still living in this, the kingdom of this world. Help us to know what that looks like. Give us wisdom, we pray. Uh, help us to know where to draw the lines. Help us to know where not to draw the lines, but where to engage um, thoughtfully and lovingly. We pray for your, your help in all of that. and We do ask, Lord, that that might be a great witness to your sovereign grace among us as we live as your elect exiles here. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.